You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Rory Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, getting the most out of your annual report, our investors and companies speaking different languages, and a look at the global top 50 for IR. Hello and welcome to the Ticker Podcast, a weekly roundup of the top stories from around the world of investor relations. We are back in the pod studios this week with Tim Heumann, Garnet Roach and Condice de Montpetit. Hello. Hello. Uh, first up this week, it's a cautionary tale for any pre-IPO company in the throes of its quiet period. Um, as we heard this week, the CEO of mobile dating app firm Tinder has let some juicy details of his own love life uh, loose in an interview with the British newspaper and has then forced the company to make a last-minute regulatory filing. Uh, Sean Rad, who was only reinstalled as CEO this August after being named in a sexual harassment case at Tinder last year, told the Evening Standard intimate details, including when he lost his virginity, how many women he slept with, and his own addiction to swiping right on his own app. Rad also took the ill-advised route of telling the paper's readers exactly what floats his boat. He says, quote, apparently there's a term for someone who gets turned on by intellectual stuff, you know, just talking. What's the word? And then he said a word which definitely wasn't what he's looking for, which is sapiosexual. Went for something very unfortunate instead, which we won't repeat. Uh, But Match Group, the company that owns Tinder and several other dating sites, uh, said in its filing that Rad is not an executive officer of the parent company and that the interview he did hadn't been officially sanctioned. So a bit of a telling off there for Mr. Rad. Um, I think it's high on the list of things you don't want to let slip to investors, you know, your personal taste in the bedroom. Quite right. Perhaps he needs to try the Chinese version that comes up with a warning when you uh, say inappropriate things (laughs) to other other members. Warns you when genitals are mentioned. Yeah, no, no, no. Slap on the wrist. I read the interview in the the Evening Standard and it wasn't that bad. I mean... In the quiet period. (laughs) (laughs) I guess when everyone is listening for any information about your company and then you start talking about, yeah, your preferences, it's not, it's going to get heard, isn't it? Yeah, he he was basically saying that he was a romantic and he was um, looking for love, you know, in all these wrong places. <laughs> I think he also said that he met with a different girl from Tinder every week, so clearly. I think he said that he falls in love with a new girl every week. But yes, I mean, it's just how you put it really, isn't it? <laughs> I was just thinking you could have a Tinder for investor relations where it like shows up lots of uh, investors you can swipe right if you want to meet one you can swipe left if you don't yeah maybe someone could build it into their new uh, technological platform that they're developing for corporate access guys if you're listening we want to see tinder for investors or for iros i mean the investor could swipe it's like hmm this iro Mm, not <laughs> this one no 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 thank you well invest investment conferences already hold like speed dating events as they put it where you go and spend five minutes with a different company it's the only it's the natural progression well at any rate it was clearly a, a marked disconnect between what mr rad wanted to talk about and what tinder's potential investors might be remotely interested in which interestingly enough is not quite exactly what tim has been finding out about this week but close i think a new survey has been released by cmi2i a uk-based firm that provides corporate governance consulting services to European companies. Uh, It finds there is a gap between what investors and companies want to talk about, specifically within the context of governance. The biggest area of divergence is risk, where around 90% of investors say they have initiated conversations on this topic, while only 30% of companies say they have. Of course, this doesn't mean companies aren't talking about risk, but it suggests that they're not being proactive about discussing it. And as CMI2I points out, This means they may not be as prepared as they could be when they're talking about it, or maybe they won't have the right people available to speak about it. And were there any other findings to pull out from this survey? Broadly, the survey concludes that companies see corporate governance conversations quite narrowly, uh, focusing on performance issues and remuneration mainly. 
while investors are viewing it as a much broader discussion. Uh, Notably for IROs, 9 out of 10 investors in the survey say they want to talk about strategy within a corporate governance context, compared to only 6 out of 10 of corporate respondents. CMI2I here suggests it may be worth the company secretariat and IR department teaming up for meetings so they can cover this sort of broad ground together. Uh, This mirrors what we have seen in the US market, where a growing focus on governance among investors has seen IR teams and corporate secretaries, as the legal people are called in the US, working more closely together. And as for going into 2016, does the survey have any insights for them too? One other point from the survey, which uh, looks at expectations for engagement, um, is that over half of investors say they plan to increase their uh, conversations with companies about governance in 2016. Uh, You wouldn't really expect them to say anything else. Governance is obviously a very important topic. But at the same time, it stresses that this is an area companies might want to focus on a bit more when it comes to their engagement and uh, investor communications. There's a bit more from that survey in my um, winter issue article on the uh, 2016 proxy season. Look out for that. Look out for that indeed. Yes, the winter edition of IO Magazine, which should be with you in the next week or so, I think, if all goes to plan. We've got lots of, we, we've been talking about some of the articles in previous weeks, but obviously Garnet's one. Is the most interesting. It's the most interesting is exactly the phrase I was looking for. <laughs> it's the longest. Um, Garnet, hopefully... <laughs> Get yourself a comfy chair when you're going to read that one. <laughs> Cup of tea. Well, anyway, Garnet, we're going to move on from one of your very interesting articles to one that you've been looking at this week. Tell us more. Well, we've been taking a bit of a look at annual reports this week with a call for higher quality reports from small companies and a look at a new tool that combines web and print reports. So the UK's Financial Reporting Council, the FRC, is calling on smaller listed companies to write concise and understandable year-end reports. Always a good thing to have. It wants these firms to offer clear explanations of how they generate cash flow as well as detailed information about accounting policies. The advice is being offered to some 1,200 smaller listed and aim-quoted companies in the UK as they begin preparing for their year-end reports. It points out that annual reports are particularly important at these smaller firms as they often form the bulk of the information investors can easily access. Stephen Hadrill, the council's chief executive, says in a press release that, quote, it is imperative that annual reports enable investors to understand exactly how the company is performing to enable them to assess the long-term prospects for their investment. For smaller quoted companies in particular, he adds, investors rely heavily on the annual report because other information is relatively scarce. What uh, concrete advice does the FRC offer then? Well, the council advises smaller companies to ditch the templated report and create something that's company-specific. They also say that firms should describe accounting policies for all significant transactions and revenue streams, be clear when revenue is recognised for each revenue stream, and drop policies that just aren't significant to the annual report. It also offers some advice for strategic reports, and the FRC says a clear narrative describing the company's business model and strategy should be set out, detailing the main factors likely to affect the company in the future, and the links between the information in the strategic report and the annual report. And not content with just one story about annual reports, Scott. I believe you've been talking to someone about a new kind of annual report too. Well, it's a new type of annual report tool, actually. I spoke to Gord Sutton, who is the founder of Toronto-based Sutton Compliance, and he's been telling me about their tool, which he says could significantly cut reporting costs. So his in-house team of coders have created what they call the Dynamic Print Generator. It uses a dedicated content management system to create web pages that can be printed straight into a high-resolution PDF. So it switches out images to high-resolution versions and also swaps videos for stills, for example. So rather than the dog's breakfast, as Gord calls it, that you usually get when you print a web page, his system allows companies to turn an annual report or quarterly 
or quarterly release into, quote, a printed book at the top. Uh, so in practical terms, what does that mean? Well, he says that his system offers a number of benefits over traditional annual reports that need to be created separately for online and print, and that also cost a lot more if you want both. In addition to the financial savings, um, he also says that his system allows clients the option to make their own changes in the CMS, which further cuts costs and also reduces the time spent going back and forth each time you want to make changes. That's really interesting to hear. I wonder how many companies actually produce an online annual report versus producing a print one, though. Well, a recent NIRI study um, of US companies found that two-thirds produce both a print and an online version of the annual report, with more than nine out of ten of them using a PDF for their online report. It also found that annual report budgets in the US were continuing to fall, but one of the issues around that, that Gord actually highlighted was the fact that even when a company wants to create an online annual report... Often there might be a thousand people, for example, that still want a printed version, so they, they have an obligation to still provide that. Well, it is funny that we finish speaking about annual reports, can't it? Because they are one of the several categories which uh, investor relations officers can win in awards at our annual awards across the world. And I believe that Condice has been looking further into the global IR Top 50, which was just very recently unveiled. Yes, um, actually at our, our um, global IR forum that took uh, place in New York this week. So congrats to Novo Nordisk, uh, which topped the charts this year, followed by Covidian and BASF. And the award for best RO went to <laughs> Mark Henninger from Intel. So congrats to him. Croton from Brazil won the award for best IR by a small mid-cap. Uh, Enterprise Products Partners won best IR by senior management. And uh, China's Sinopec won most progress in IR. And speaking of China, what about our upcoming awards in Asia too? Our shortlist for um, Asia are out. Um, for Greater China, we have some new blood in the race, actually. Exciting. Carry Logistics from Hong Kong, which is shortlisted for Most Progress in IR, Best IRO Small and Mid-Cap, Best IRO by a Hong Kong company, the Sector Award for Industrials, and also the Grand Prix for um, the Mid-Cap category. So that's a lot, especially for a, a newcomer. TCL Communication Technology Holdings from Shenzhen, also shortlisted for Most Progress in IR, Best IRO Small and Mid-Cap, Best IRO by Mainline Chinese Company, the Sector Award for Technology, and the Grand Prix for Mid-Caps. Leading the shortlist there, what about in Southeast Asia? Who's leading the way? Well, there were fewer surprises in that region. Um, we have Capital Land, shortlisted for six awards, including the Grand Prix for Large Caps. And with Harold Wu gone, uh, the company's new IRO, uh, Hui Hua Chang, has been nominated for Best IRO for uh, Large Caps. DBS is also shortlisted for um, the Large Cap Grand Prix with four additional nominations. And just behind, we have uh, three companies with four nominations, Casacorn Bank from Thailand, Metro Pacific um, and Security Bank, both from the Philippines. So stay tuned uh, for the results. Yes, absolutely. Do stay tuned uh, for the Greater China Awards, which are going to happen on December the 2nd at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Hong Kong. And of course, the Southeast Asia Awards, which are going to take place uh, at the Singapore Exchange in Singapore on December the 4th. You can find out more at the IR Magazine uh, events website, which is found at www.irmagazine.com forward slash events. Tickets are still available for both of those dates. There's more information about how to book them uh, there on the events website. And we'll bring you the latest from the evenings themselves. And they happen to tell you who's won the awards and who the best companies and individuals for IR are in the region. Well, that, after all, is all we have time for this week. Thanks again, guys, for joining us. We will see you all next week. Thank you, Laurie. Thanks, Bye. Laurie. Bye. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.